0: Our teacher this evening and the next three weeks is Professor Emeritus at Hillsdale College, Daniel Sundall, where he taught for 35 years. 15 of those, he held the Distinguished Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Intellectual History, a figure Russell Kirk that you'll be learning a lot more about in the next few weeks. For 10 years, he served as the governor's board member to the Michigan Council for Humanities. and an equal amount of time, as a committee member for the National Endowment for Humanities and also for the National Endowment for the Arts. He was the recipient of the Emily Dautry Teaching Award and the first senior faculty member to so be honored. And he was four-time nominee for Professor of the Year, an honor that he respectfully declined each time. He's the author of three books, all of which are out of print. The second of these books won the National Gwendolyn Brooks Poetry Award He's also been widely published over the years with numerous articles. Most recently, some of the ones I've been enjoying can be found on the Imaginative Conservative. Um, they very good one I read recently on Isaac Yokes, and as well as another one on Rusty's Bronson, T.S. Eliot. There's a bunch of different ones. They're all very good. Um, I highly recommend looking them up. Um, Professor Sundahl is Scandinavian by mood and temperament and as such is a card-carrying Norwegian introvert. He and his spice, not spice, his spice, spouse, his wife, Ellen, in the back, his spice. That's
1: the apple of my eye.
0: They live in Greer um, and have two cats, one chocolate Labrador. um, Dan is an accomplished fly fisherman and I was going to say a pretty decent golfer in that a few weeks ago at the Prince of Peace in St. Rafka Charity Golf Tournament. They were giving away a free Forerunner from if you hit a hole in one, which he did on the next hole. So he missed. So good golfer, but with bad timing. So um, that case, um, thank you. And I'm gonna pass it on to Dr. Dan thank you.
1: Mr. Nielsen warms my Norwegian heart. And I want to thank him for inviting me because when I was here in April I thought after April that's my swan song and I can quit and retire and do whatever it is that I want. But anyway, it was hard to uh, disagree with him, especially since the topic concerns much of what I spent my professorial years professing, so I'm grateful to round the bases one more time. Although, to be quite frank, Mr. Nielsen gave me a difficult, difficult job. (laughs) How am I supposed to summarize all of this in four lectures? Anyway, I'm pleased to introduce you to a mentor of mine, mentor to many at our college also, Dr. Russell Amos Kirk, author of some 30 books, and is what was at one time called a man of letters. So it all started years ago, eons ago, in the garden and something came into being that we know of as divine command theory what we do morally is dependent upon god which does not mean that we are morally infantile and it's also not a mouse trap what's in the midst of our daily living is what we call in these four sessions natural law combined with natural rights so the problem is then The garden has become something like this, still in time that is very, very, very close to us. The question is why? Are nations brought into being then merely to be deformed by ideology, which is, as Dr. Kirk argues, disastrous for liberties? So Dr. Kirk was also fond of quoting a sentence from the 12th century attributed to Bernard of Chartres. We are but dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. I had a student one time misspeak on that by saying we're but midgets standing on the shoulders of giants. And so there he is. That's the sage of Macosta, Michigan, population 527. We are but dwarfs. And he was also, by the way, the justice of the peace in Macosta, Michigan. And we one time brought him a t shirt that said, The Law of Macosta County. <laughs> He also performed weddings. It's a pre-modern generalization then repeated down through the years until <clears throat> means we make progress by using the wisdom of major thinkers we have gone before us represented by four cities, Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and London. So small though we are, we stand on the shoulders of those giants which allows us to see farther on the horizon. But it's very wise to keep a balance, lest one fall and lose sight of that horizon. So I'm suspicious these days, you see, that education is not an ongoing refining of the work of those ancestors, those predecessors. And one reason is it's hard work. And who wants to listen to all of those thoughts or respond by commenting in a variety of ways or spend a whole heck of a lot of time reading those really old books, which, as Marxist critic Frederick Jameson, has argued, none of those old books are longer any longer applicable upon us. But what if Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and London were providentially placed in our history by a sovereign God intending a work. Not willy-nilly, but ours to continue everything that began in the garden years ago. From Jerusalem, we inherit Revelation. From Athens, we inherit the first historians, literature, architecture, philosophy. From Rome, the rule of law, a Republican constitution. But also we know a descent into barbarism, which encroached upon a once magnificent civilization, even into the Christian era, when emperors, those of Caesars, were addressed as your eternity. It's a family name, by the way, dating to the first Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, but it means the same thing as the German Kaiser or the Russian Tsar. From London, the 1215 Magna Carta, signed document, and the first in writing, the principle that the king did not rule by divine fiat and was not above the law and established law as a power in and of itself and that everyone is subject to the law, even the king. And it guarantees then the rights of persons, the right to justice, the right to a fair trial, and the right of habeas corpus, which became codified and prevents illegal detention And all of this, 561 years prior to our own 1776 Declaration of Independence, and thus pre-modern. And then the word law, which is also an old English word from the law, and it simply means what is right, what is true, and what is fitting. And then in 1215, we arrive at the 1215 British Bill of Rights, followed by the Bloodless Revolution in 1688, in which a king was deposed, which changed England by giving Parliament power over the monarchy. But it also had an extraordinary impact on 13 colonies in North America, and which led to the 1689 British Bill of Rights, and was also used then to draft our own 1789 United States Bill of Rights, which established then free elections and freedom of speech. And so these are all then pre-modern documents which are landmarks in the history of constitutional law and also then to the roots of American order. What if that is not, you see, the cold dead hand of past history presumed no longer to be applied to us, but is rather the accumulation of wisdom which is unwise to neglect and that Abraham and Moses and Jesus and the disciples and Homer and Plato and Aristotle, Pythagoras, Virgil, Cicero and so on, so many of these that we revere as teachers, spiritual prophets, actually walked the earth's ground, drank the same water, warmed by the same sun, entranced by the same moon and the sound of night birds. So who could not be intrigued by the wisdom of the ages and what began in a garden eons and eons ago. But those four cities mentioned by Dr. Kirk in the roots of American order flourished and fell into disorder. So there must be something afoot in history and a menace to order, and that which is afoot, Dr. Kirk calls ideology, which he defines as inverted religion, a menace against a more humane order. So one wonders then How do we go about contending against disorder, or will that menace prevail? So one question then that besets us at the beginning here is metaphysical, the question of order, and whether order is in fact the very first need of all if living is to be tolerable. So Dr. Kirk again now deals with this in the very, very first chapter of the Roots of American Order. Where he makes the problem, or makes the argument that the problem in our own day is very little different than the times of Plato, Cicero, just to mention two of those giants. He quotes Simone Weil, calling her one of the great spirits of our times, 1909 to 1943. Now, apart from her book titled The Need for Roots, Dr. Kirk mentions there's also Waiting for God. She's pertinent during her own time because she predicted in 1932, the rise of Hitler. And she also criticized in the 1930s then, the infatuation with Marxist thought. She was distressed by the disorder in her time, but she found respite, she says, in a spiritual encounter, which she phrased, Christ came down and took possession of me. With that notion that order is the very, very first need of all, there's wisdom in starting with St. Augustine, for whom order reflected the divine rationality of God. He lived in a time of disorder, but in the face of that disorder, established the ancient faith anew, while fending off those vandals. He wrote that the purpose of living was to put things in order to allow them to reveal themselves as being dependent upon God, their creator, Since God created his handiwork, we must live our lives then to value his handiwork, which means moral reformation is uppermost in Augustine's thought, arguing the necessity for order in the soul, which allows the soul then to contend with disorder manifest in misery, disease, suffering, sin, the world shot through as a result of the fall from the garden. There's some recent scholarship, by the way, that the classical period, which is ordinarily marked with the death of Augustine, and then the beginning of the medieval period following his death. The scholarship is revising history by arguing that the vandals from the north were not barbarians, but just some disgruntled Germans. (laughs) Where do you go with that? (laughs) Some disgruntled Germans, angry with St. Augustine, who purportedly at one time said that Satan had planted his cities in the north, which was actually a backhanded swipe at German Gothic architecture. So that was, I love this stuff. Go ahead and revise it all you want. So those disgruntled Germans then beandered south, but they really did not sack Rome so much as they just simply tore some copper sheets off the rooftops, and then left a whole lot of graffiti on the walls which today in Germany, by the way, is actually a national art form, and is therefore also legal. <laughs> I just couldn't resist that one. And I'm glad you caught the joke. Anyway, Augustine was not inventing matters out of thin air. He was well-versed in the Romans and the Greeks, especially Plato, and later the Neo-Platonist Plotinus. But all of that related to the city of man. And so his larger concerns then were for the city of God, and here his ideas date to the Deuteronomist himself, Moses. It's Moses then who contended with disorder for 40 years with the Hebrews well before their entry into the Promised Land. He laid out a personal, cultural, and political argument for order among his culture, which of course are found in the Ten Commandments, which of course are natural laws, placed in the midst of our day by day by day lives, which are to be taught to children, placed on the doorposts of houses as a reminder that everyone in the household was to pursue order, the first need of all. Those 40 years wandering in the wilderness were years of nation building, whereby the Hebrew people prepared to become the nation of Israel, but with the provision that the eternal mystique preceded the temporal mystique, a bit like a cloud by day, pillar of fire at night, or even the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Testimony, always carried in advance when the people were marching their way toward the Promised Land. So the question then, the second question is, why did Dr. Kirk write The Roots of American Order, published in 1974, two years before the 1976 bicentennial. There are only a few of us here who remember it. (laughs) (laughs) The tall ships. So context is helpful if we begin to explore then one popular argument which states that the country's founding began only in the years between 1776 and 1789, making the American founding then modern and a consequence of the Enlightenment, the intellectual movement between the 17th and 18th centuries, which emphasized, then, reason and experimentation. So there's a conflict, then, between science and religion. And with the Enlightenment, then, we begin to find the emergence of the social sciences, among which is political science. And so we arrive at people like Thomas Paine, who writes things like In the Age of Reason, about Christian theology and about Moses, and also mentions at one moment in the same book, you expect me to believe that a spirit descends from heaven, commits an act of debauchery with the Virgin while her husband is in the other room, prove it. He wants scientific evidence. So the second question then is between those years, now Dr. Kirk, Leo Strauss, Harry Jatha agree that observation and reflection are necessary, but there's a difference between the political philosopher and the political scientist. And how many from Furman? I'm very sad that you no longer have the opportunity to learn from Ty Tessator. He's my next door neighbor. So there's a difference between the political philosopher, and that's what he was or is, and a political scientist. Now the latter then designs experiments to bring the political world into some kind of outcome without realizing that there is such a thing as the law of unforeseen consequences, which can then deform the national interest. So according to Dr. Kirk, what the political scientist fails to understand is an inability to grasp tyranny for what it really is and then tends to ignore such notions as fascism and authoritarianism and socialism, arguing that such things are only value judgments. The political philosopher, on the other hand, offers an argument that is buttressed by reflections from the deep, deep well of history. Begins with the first five books of the Old Testament, then we move over to Plato and Socrates, evolves into Aristotle and his treatise on the politics, The political scientist begins with the 16th century and with this figure. The political philosopher will read Shakespeare and wonders whether Macbeth is evil. The political scientist never, ever, ever reads Shakespeare. So for a political philosopher, therefore, those political science value judgments are morally to be understood as tyranny and therefore a consequence of ideology. So as for the American founding and the modern argument, the context is the modern political argument that the American war for independence comes about as an effect of the Enlightenment and argues then for a kind of enlightened perfection, the best of all possible worlds, if only that possible world is tailored according to whatever might be included, usually in a slogan. For me, The Great Society comes to mind. You might remember that from Lyndon Johnson, The Great Society, which cost billions of dollars. But that desire for enlightenment, that Dr. Kirk argues, is followed by the French Revolution, which presumes to bring about something good, but actually brings about terror and tyranny instead. But for the enlightened, Thomas Paine presumes a kind of bond then between the American war for independence and the French Revolution. Dr. Kirk is aware that a good deal of enlightenment ideology is causal, meaning that it can lead then to revolutions that did not bring about enlightened perfection, but actually unleashed disorder. And of course, history is testimony to the death of millions. A lie told often enough becomes the truth. And even today, Marxism and socialism is thought of as an optimistic philosophy. If you win, you need not have to explain. If you lose, you should not be there to explain. And so explain the chambers and the Holocaust. What was established then by the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution is the appearance of modern tyranny, new types of political evil, brought about by an almost religious belief in the power of reason to bring about human perfectibility, an earthly paradise, and a world anew. Dr. Kirk did not have a computer on his desk. He had a typewriter, which had a ribbon, and an array of keys, which struck the ribbon, but which sometimes stuck. It was not electric. Dr. Kirk was a very patient man. His concern then, when he surveyed history, allowed him then to come to terms with what he said, contradictions to ideology, which stand then in contradiction to the six canonical principles argued for in his earlier 1953 book, The Conservative Mind from Burke to Eliot. Number four here is a case in point, a belief that property and freedom are closely, closely linked. We don't have time here to survey now the ideology of Jean Jacques Rousseau, this character, whom Edmund Burke called the mad Socrates of the French Assembly. His social argument turns out to be the antithesis of John Locke's Second Treatise on Government and the protection of private property as the primary purpose of government and thus preserving order, but not the usurpation of private property. Rousseau saw private property as the source of inequality, and civil laws needed then to be made which would govern the system to create what he thought would be equal outcomes. So according to Rousseau, you might very well have a deed to your farm or your home which makes that property your own, but you have to understand that all property is held in trust by the common good. And the common good can dictate what one can and cannot do with that property. And by common good now, he simply meant that society cannot function without the social contract that reflects the general will of the people, which is understood as vox populi, the voice of the people. Now, how that general will ever, ever, ever arises is unclear, but it seems over time to have gravitated into collectivism, in which certain social conditions are brought into existence equally to everyone's advantage. And this is what is known as egalitarianism. Edmund Burke, on the other hand, like Dr. Kirk, is opposed to that argument and knew that to achieve such an earthly common good would require confidence in the collective reason of the people. And the only way to achieve this invention of the world anew would be revolutionary transformation on rational principles, which, by the way, might require breaking a million or more eggs, or maybe a billion or more eggs, to make this brand new omelet, and also, by the way, a whole heck of a lot of taxation. Dr. Kirk saw this project then as a chain of political reasoning without political restraint, and the result, tyranny the history of Europe from the 19th into the 20th centuries. And for him, the phrase, political restraint, was paramount. And I haven't heard that phrase mentioned in a long, long time. So again, when we arrive at that bicentennial in 1976, two years after Dr. Dr. Kirk's book, one might wonder if the celebration would argue that the United States was founded on a political science, which emerges from the Enlightenment, rather than something more pre-modern. The modern argument would again suggest that the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, emerged solely as a result of the Enlightenment. Which brings us to this point. So what is natural rights philosophy, and what are the sources? During the medieval period and into the Renaissance, the problem in political ethics was pretty simple. It's just simply around duties, not rights. It's based upon what was known as the Great Chain of Being, and an operation was called feudalism. Duties were owed to one's lord, king, church, God. Now, my own family, by the way, has some history here. What would be an ancient kind of Norwegian grandfather to me, many, many, many times removed, and sometime actually in the early 1500s, there's this lonely and bereft young man, which is sort of like the Norwegian motto, well, he fell in love with a Swedish girl, which was at that time accounted as bad manners. <laughs> he desired, though, she being the lutefisk to his white fish, took his desire from lutefisk to white sauce. You're all of a sudden back in Minnesota listening to Garrison Keillor, I know that. So he persisted, though, and took his desire for matrimony to the Norwegian king. He expressed his fealty to the king, and the king also then gave the king also a whole lot of kroner, which led the king to okay this mixed marriage between the Norwegian and the Swede, which led to familiarity between my Norwegian ancestor and the Swedish girl, and of course, and with familiarity, children. The point was, though, to give guidance to government, since the idea now, under natural rights, was that a man could have rights which were bequeathed by God and which granted sanctity since they were inalienable now the problem is that a right which is supposed to be exercised and argues that a man holds that kind of power but that power would be negligible unless it were not unless it were supported by positive law and that power then enables any man to improve his station in life which is largely understood to be the consequence first of all of economics albeit one should also add moral improvement. And so this becomes a little bit more confused than in modern times when arguments begin to appear about unenumerated rights. Natural rights philosophy, however, carefully confers a right always with an accompanying moral duty. So Dr. Kirk would not make a denial that natural rights philosophy is well within an originalist intention in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. His concern would be with the modern evolution of natural rights philosophy well beyond the original intent of the framers. What might happen, for example, in the past century when the Supreme Court enlarges the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment by protecting what the Court at that time called unenumerated rights? which do not exhaust other rights retained by the people, albeit these unenumerated rights, do not have a source in the Bill of Rights Continued, but in this vast kind of gaseous penumbra surrounding the Constitution. This is 1965, which we would find then wheels set in motion, Griswold v. Connecticut, the right to marital privacy, and then a few laters vectoring straight into Roe v. Wade. So we have to consider then some arguments here in documents providing the rationale for natural rights in the founding years. Primary documents would be the Virginia Declaration of Independence, drafted in 1776, Declaration of Independence, drafted in 1776, the American Constitution, signed on September 17, 1787, and then followed by the United States, the American Bill of Rights. If that's true, then, before the Constitution was sent to the states to be ratified, 39 of the 55 delegates signed on that September date. Those who did not did so because there was at that time no Bill of Rights. And they are sometimes to this very, very day called anti-federalists. And they are deeply, deeply invested in states' rights. And they like living in South Carolina. (laughs) What we know of, the Bill of Rights then began its ratification in 1789 and not until December 15, 1791 do we find three-fourths of the states adopting ten of the proposed twelve amendments. Unanimity was not required. Only nine of thirteen states needed to approve. Then this. To achieve ratification of the Constitution and so on, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay set about a defense to be found in what was eventually come to be known as the Federalist Papers, published in newspapers. And for natural rights folks, the Federalist Papers are something akin to a political Bible. What they were doing was articulating the political philosophy inherent in the Constitution and then informing that public opinion through the media of the day, and that was only newspapers. Constitution ratified by the states in June 1788, ten amendments, commandments, Bill of Rights, all of this done then by December 1791. But again, over time, a modern argument develops, which is that the roots of American order actually began as a kind of experiment, came to life only during those 14 years, part of the Enlightenment, which again emphasized reason over revelation and science over faith. Now, if that's true, The roots of American order are, again, enlightenment ideas, again, from such top figures as Thomas Paine, putting to rest a pre-modern argument that an eternal mystique precedes a temporal mystique. The question would be, then, what happens to a nation when the greatest source for its liberties are born of faith? Does it become de-republicanized and does it become de-Christianized? That would make our United States a modern development and a symbol of enlightenment becoming perfected and ideas that we would call classically liberal. Now, here it's possible to get lost because the word liberal, as used by Adam Smith in his The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, describes a liberal system of free exportation and importation of goods which is what we would call a free market. So the word then came to mean liberal principles in commerce, but also liberal in that every man had the freedom to pursue his own interests upon the liberal plan of life. And so we know this again as natural rights theory, which says that an individual enters into a social contract with basic rights already in place and that no government can deny those rights among which are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, or as Locke said, property. And against this, we have no issue. Fundamental to this natural law then, which is presumed to be valid everywhere, is the enlightenment notion of natural law, but very, very different from what we would find in Augustine or Aquinas. The assumption argues natural law is a general sort of rule found out by reason to create then an edifice of positive law by rational deduction from an hypothetical state of nature by nature's God, who did create everything, but that everything was a majestic sort of clock like machine, which nature's God then made, set it in motion, but never ever comes back to interfere with its operation. Such is called deism. And that we know, of course, is opposed to theism. So that was then what one might call natural liberty. And a starting point for how the modern world then came to be invented and gained traction until an ism was attached to that word liberal, and it began to develop different meanings, which forced the older liberals to rebrand themselves as classical liberals. So natural liberty, then, assumes a theory that a long time ago lived a natural man in a state of nature, and in total, total freedom, unencumbered. The theory says nothing about a garden. That natural man then oftentimes found himself in brutish, brutish conflict with other natural men. And as a consequence, these natural men then entered into a kind of social contract and gave up some of their natural liberty to form this contract, which then would lessen the conflict. The theory says nothing about a natural woman, but if it did, the theory would change, and frankly, for the better. Hmm. Where was I? So as historical time went along then in theory, one man fenced off a piece of land and called it his, another invented something and called it his, and the problem that developed then was the difference between the haves and the have-nots. The haves, so the theory goes, to protect their interests formed a lo- larger social contract and they called it government. That was formed only to protect their interests. Such a thing as the church then was also formed by the haves to protect their interests. Over time, the separation between the haves and the have-nots became acute because of the mischiefs of kings, in particular, who were haves, and they were also divinely empowered. What interestingly emerged then is the idea that only the people are sovereign have that divine right. When matters become acute between the haves and the have-nots, the people have a right to revolt, since, as Rousseau says, we're all born free and find ourselves everywhere in chains. What emerges is a justification for revolution in which people then begin to form an aggregate of interests, a collective, which when formed is supposed always to be directed, as they like to say, toward the common good. We know this is a direct form of democracy, which is different from a republic. So what? What if, according to this theory, what if no such figure as a natural man was ever, ever to be found in history? And that mankind, throughout all of history, has always been in a community, the smallest form of which is the family. Every time old John Adams heard this argument for the natural man, he sort of went apoplectic. He was so opposed to it. So Dr. Kirk then, agreeing with Edmund Burke, believed that such an argument was way too simplistic, ignoring the complexities of human nature while disbelieving in divine moral order and original sin. Reforms are needed but best achieved by gradual constitutional reform and not revolution based upon untested ideology. Burke had in mind the consequences following the French Revolution and terror, and Dr. Kirk had in mind the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. So dropping back again a bit to Burke's earlier book, The Conservative Mind, its thesis is a patrimony, a conservative tradition in American culture. The book criticizes liberalism's naive belief in rationality, progress, as well as the panacea of economics and other social sciences, which oversimplified the complexity of human motivation. The book stands opposed to modern liberalism also, and classical liberalism, which advocates fiscal conservatism while being socially liberal. You hear this a lot. I'm a fiscal conservative and a social liberal. So from his vantage point in 1970, or 1974, he disagreed that the roots of the American founding began with the Enlightenment. He understood that such again was witness to the beginnings of modern tyranny, which was established first by the French Revolution, then by the Russian Revolution, and he's worried in 1974 that he would see all of these types as a po- political evil but he's worried that Americans might very well succumb to similar forms of modern tyranny unless an argument could be made that the roots of American order predate modernism and that the American Constitution was not invented simply from thin political air of the Enlightenment, but had roots that are deeply, deeply embedded in history and is not a liberal document, but a conservative document. So on or about then, July 4th, 1776, shots are heard around the world were fired. The question is why? And if not, oh, no answer is forthcoming. Let's pitch a hissy fit and toss a bunch of tea in Boston Harbor. So the Americans had some grievances and made attempts, but to no avail. They were advocating they needed to be recognized as Americans, which is how they were identifying themselves and were arguing that as such they had become a different people informed by their own history and developing customs. The members of the 1775 Congress then assigned Thomas Jefferson to draft a document explaining why the colonists had taken up arms against the mother country and why the Americans had become a new nation which meant a different people informed by their own history and customs albeit still retaining much from the old world. And note again that in the background here, Magna Carta, the 1688 British Bill of Rights, the latter again in which King James alienated most of the United Kingdom by suspending both the Scottish and the English parliaments. A coalition of British politicians gathered themselves together, made nice to a guy by the name of William of Orange, who landed on the English coast with 14,000 troops joined by 30,000 Royal Army British troops. The King vamoosed. In 1688, were the American colonists aware of what was happening back across the Atlantic? You betcha. But note the phrase coalition of British politicians, which bears similarity to a coalition of American politicians some 87 years later. Now, the end result in 1680 again is confirmed the primacy of Parliament over the monarchy and the British rule of rights, which laid down limits on the powers of the king, sets out the rights of Parliament, included free elections and freedom of speech, and no right of taxation without representation. And there's also a little sidebar here you might appreciate, allowed Protestants to bear arms. Mistakes have been made. So when the Americans then you see a number of years later are in a quandary because King George is violating the terms of that 1688 Bill of Rights, they prudently respond, and Jefferson did so in this document titled A Declaration of the Causes, but it stopped short in 1775 of declaring independence. King George charged the Americans with rebellion. Parliament passed legislation placing the Americans outside The legalities of the British Bill of Rights. This legislation is what allowed then American ships on the open sea to be seized, colonial towns burned, foreign mercenaries sent to put down the rebellion, German Hessians, some 30,000 troops hired by the British and they made up roughly 25% of the entire British standing army in the colonies. May 1776 Congress passed a resolution that attacked King George himself. Now, the point is simple. The Americans had been living under the terms of the British Bill of Rights, but those rights were being violated. And remember, those rights were natural rights bequeathed by natural law. So the problem is that the word revolution is very, very often used, which will suggest a kind of topsy-turvy social and political overturn. Speaking of themselves as Americans, though, The more salient argument was that those framers were actually championing for themselves the rights of Englishmen, such rights stated in that 1688 pre-modern Bill of Rights all the way back to Magna Carta. So consider the matter this way, which is also a segue into pre-modern roots. The framers intended no revolutionary break with the past. Rather, they were conservators, not innovators which is, as I've been suggesting, is now so dominant among modern American historians of American politics, and the country's founding arising from the Enlightenment. Now, if you wish to test this argument sometime, next time you are out in society and you are among the daughters of the American Revolution, <laughs> tread lightly. They're very sensitive about that word, revolution. Rebellion, more likely. Be civil and prudent. And they mostly, by the way, hang out at the Poinsett Club. <laughs> which is a lovely place. So when those, <laughs> when those men deliberated that summer in Philadelphia, they did so with a deep understanding of history and the guiding notion of the providential view of history. Washington presided, James Madison's on the side, and he took notes of the debates. We know that on the table near Washington... Was the Geneva Bible. This is from my friend Sam Connect, who painted this majestic scene here at the convention at work, and various Hillsdale College faculty members posed. And I know what you're thinking. Could be. You you have to go see the painting to find out for sure. Now, here's the point. Not all the delegates were learned, but as Dr. Kirk points out in The Roots of American Order, there were those who studied at American colleges, Yale, Harvard, William and Mary, to mention three of the nine chartered colleges at that time. Furman was not there yet. I'm sorry you had to wait for a minute. So all of these were in existence prior to the War for Independence and which ranged between congr- congregationalism to Anglican. All of them were animated by a desire to provide the fledgling American population with ministers and educated laymen. So not always mentioned in our history was the educational undertaking for young men to become wholesome, conservative, but also an emphasis on education for political wisdom, for independence to be displayed then by American statesmen who were graduates of these colleges And this is a character story largely absent from our history. Now, what these men knew was historical knowledge well before the Enlightenment, but contemporary also to the Enlightenment. And they had libraries. And they had well-thumbed books, such as Plutarch's Lives, which runs about 900 pages. And when you look at it, character after character after character, it was an exercise in logic. So you study the character and the nobility of one and compare it to the lack of nobility in the other, and you can see the meaningful experience they get from reading such an ancient book. This leaves us now with a discussion as to what we mean again by pre-modern history and a survey of the political ideals of that group of pilgrims who arrived in 1620, and the second wave of Puritans arriving in 1630, and that second group is always referred to as the Massachusetts Bay Company. The problem with the Pilgrim landing is it was in the wrong place. Charter was Virginia, but they landed in Plymouth, which also then became the name of their plantation. Had they landed in Virginia, they would have already had a charter in place and therefore a means already in place to govern themselves. That wasn't the case. So they created a charter, but do note that in the charter, the eternal mystique precedes the temporal mystique. In the name of God preceding the civil body politic. In the name of God and the presence of God in one another, we do covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for the better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue, herefore, do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony under which... We promise all due submission and obedience. The document was signed on board the Mayflower with 42 signatures, including one Diggory priest who was a hat maker. He didn't live through the winter. The question is whether or not this document is background to the later constitution 170 years later. Note how the text is in favor of government in the interest and the common welfare, but under God. It presupposes a compact that creates civil governance in relationship to the word of God, which one might call fundamental orders. What's missing is a detailed scheme of government represented by we the people, those men whose signatures were their testimony. The problem usually is that such is regarded as a theocracy, usually understood as no separation between church and state. It's more likely that this first American constitution set the precedent for religious freedom and ordered liberty. And so it trumpets religious commitment while organizing a civil government to preserve order, the first need of all, and under the guidance of providence, a notion which disappears almost completely in the Enlightenment. So how do we know that? From the idea of covenant, used in the text as a verb, covenant and combined which allowed citizens then to choose their own leaders, derive their own civil laws, its rule by consent of the governed, which is important in the development then of self-government institutions and arguing for freedom of conscience before God. Its pre-modern source, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy and the history of the Hebrews, who became the history of the nation of Israel under God and nation-building the gift of revelation. You only have to read the book of exodus to follow the nation-building process of the hebrew people who made an errand into the wilderness and the exodus from the death-worshipping cosmological order of the egyptians to a life-worshipping change in a transfiguration far removed from ideology which is rebellion against god so kindly note that very, very often the first governor in america was william bradford and very, very often referred to as our American Moses. So we want to call it Americanism in its infancy and with seeds generating then the roots of American order, but noting that the later constitution established a self-government, but the important idea in the Mayflower Compact laid the foundation under law. 400 years prior to this, the Magna Carta established the rule of law jump-starts the beginning of the British Constitution. The pre-modern historical connections, therefore, I think, are prescient. Note again, then, how the Compact is an illustration that governments derive their powers from the consent of the governed, and we know that in 1802, the future president, John Quincy Adams, remarked the importance of the Mayflower document pre-modern, which he said underscores the will of the people as the only legitimate source of government. This then now is John Winthrop. This is John Winthrop. Because ten years later, December 1630, a flotilla of ships assembled near Boston Harbor. In a very brief sermon then, John Winthrop, often referred to as the American Joshua, and about to be named governor then, addressed his Puritan congregation as follows. God Almighty in his most holy and wise providence hath so disposed of the condition of mankind, as in all times, some must be rich, some must be poor, some high and eminent in power and dignity, and others mean and in submission. The reason thereof. First, to hold conformity with the rest of his works, ordering all of these differences for the preservation and good of the whole. And secondly, that he might have the more occasion to manifest the work of his spirit, moderating and restraining, regenerating and exercising his grace. Third, that every man might have need of others, and from hence they might be all knit more nearly together by divine providence. For the work that we have in hand, it is by mutual consent, through a special providence and a more than ordinary portion of providence, we have sought out a place of cohabitation, under a due form of government, both civil and ecclesiastical, which must oversee all private aspects. This means to improve our lives in the duty of love, for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we deal falsely with our God, is to cause him to withdraw his present help. Therefore, let us choose life that we and our seed may live by being his voice, and clinging to him, for he is our life and our prosperity." So here's covenant theory again, the providential view of history once again, and of course the source for that root American metaphor as a city upon a hill. But what we also have is John Winthrop, a political figure elected government by free men. He also brings to the people of New England a reminder of their very high mission, he goes on in great detail about the kind of colony that should be brought into being, including the rule of law, justice, mercy, but also reminding his congregation that they are the people of God and that the eternal mystique should not be separated from the temporal mystique. Winthrop also has additional commentary from another sermon in 1641 called The Body of Liberties, which guarantees against infringement on what were called popular rights. And we know that that particular 1641 document is the first legal code established by the colonists in New England and listed as liberties rather than restrictions. But the liberties were also supposed to be agreeable to the word of God. The document is sometimes even thought of as a sort of version of the American Magna Carta. Winthrop's sermon was a commentary, but who drafted the document? This was a man by the name of Nathaniel Ward, understood as an early constitutional draftsman, and which led to an early court established to ensure the liberties guaranteed in what at that time were called the Hundred Laws. For what purpose? Because order in the soul and order in the Commonwealth are the very first needs of all. That Commonwealth is very, very small in 1641. Again, it was covenant theory, a belief in the providential view of history, but it required faith and obedience by a people who believed in binding themselves to God in their mission to create that city upon a hill. We should also conclude that the roots of American order equally, if not more pre-modern, and the impetus was to perfect again what God had, had become part of English history from the Magna Carta to the revolution for the Americans drawn from covenant theory and the providential view of history. So those first settlers, after all, often referred to their mission as an errand into the wilderness and were, again, not shy about comparing their errand into the wilderness with the Hebrews' errand into the wilderness by Moses and then to found the nation of Israel. Now to scurry toward a conclusion. One more figure. Thomas Hooker arrived in New England in 1633 with the second wave of Puritans. Like most Puritans, he remained within the British Anglican Church, aiming to reform it from within, but from a distance. 1636, Hooker and about 100 of his congregation set off on a two-week journey with 160 cattle, goats, and pigs following an Indian trail that took them to the Connecticut River and south then to the future site of Hartford. Now, they tried first of all to govern themselves according to the Massachusetts General Court, but it wasn't feasible for them for a long-term solution. So in 1638, Hooker preached a sermon in the biblical text, Acts 6.30. When it comes to election time, (laughs) choose men of wisdom, understanding, and good reputation, and whom the Lord then will set in authority over you. He was arguing, that once removed from Massachusetts, the people of Connecticut had the right to choose their own government. What followed was the inspiration for what is called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, which allowed the settlers to create a separate colony apart from Massachusetts. His argument? The foundation of government authority is laid in the free consent of the people. So what? In the lineal descent from the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut, to the American Constitution is almost a straight line. The document has the feature of a written constitution, first written constitution in the Western tradition with parts that read much like, we the people in order too. And the preface indicates that the people in this very small colony, which by the way, is only three towns at this time. These three towns actually do therefore associate and conjoin themselves together in what he says is one federal commonwealth. Three small towns formed into a union to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and so on. Now, what I suspect these days might be necessary is a very robust discussion on what that liberty and natural rights and natural law and common law actually mean. The reason thereof, who would wish to see our city upon a hill to ruin, as have all the other cities we've mentioned in Western history. And so also important to remind ourselves that Dr. Kirk never, ever, ever failed to repeat time and time again, that the body's social as of a spiritual corporation. Kirk at Rest, this is outside of Macosta in a little Catholic cemetery, right out there on the plains. As you can see, it's probably November. And the quote comes from T.S. Eliot. The communication of the dead is tongued with the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment. One more.